Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast for Real Life Church Pullman. We exist to help people know and become like Jesus. We're going to wrap up a series today. Yay! I'll take your lack of applause to mean that you love this series so much, you don't want it to end. That's what, I, that's what I'm going to believe in my inside. Um, we've been going through the book of James. And so as we've been going through the book of James, we're not really doing a verse by verse through James. We're more sort of like kind of cherry picking a highlight reel of what are some things that James really camps out on? What are some principles or truths that he really locks into? And so we talked about this in the frame of the truth is. And the truth is that your words do matter. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago, that your actions do matter. We talked about that last week. And today we're going to talk about the truth is your prayers do matter, all right? And I just want to say up front, when it comes to talking about prayer, I just want to give a little disclaimer that um, this is an area for me that I'm just continuing to grow in personally, and I, I don't want to... Um, give the wrong impression that because I'm the one up here talking to you, I don't want it to come off like I'm the one up here that uh, is the expert telling you what I know about prayer. I'm going to just really kind of camp out on what James has to say about prayer. And like many of you, I'm continuing to learn and grow in this area of my relationship with the Lord. So it's one of these tensions where sometimes I know it's hard. Uh, I talk to a lot of people at different times, and one of the things they'll say is it's it's it, the you tend to think the pastor knows all the stuff, right? And I'll just be honest and transparent with you that I know some of the stuff, and I'm learning a lot of the stuff right along with us together. All right, so we're going to dig in, and uh, in order to get us in kind of the right frame of mind today, I want to do a little rolling back the clock. Um, Because oftentimes we can approach the Word of God and we open up the text and we jump into James chapter 5 and we look at this page and this paragraph and this sentence and we read a statement and we sort of immediately start to go, what does that mean and how do I do it? And we're so far removed from the way and the place and the environment and mood that his readers would have been in. Like, what would they, where would they have been at? What would they have been feeling? How would they have heard these words? And the closer that we can get to that, and the more we're willing to wrestle and go there, which is slower, but it gets us closer to the heart of James talking to real people in a real place. So we're going to roll back the clock and kind of go back in time a little bit. And we're going to start off quite a ways back, a hundred years before James's time. About a hundred years before the time that James was writing this letter, things changed drastically for God's people. Huge event took place that changed the shape of their lives and religion forever, Rome. Rome is on the move. They're beginning to expand their kingdom. They're growing and, and moving further and further west. This famous general, many of us are familiar with, Pompey, leads the charge west until Rome eventually gets to Judea and, uh, and Jerusalem, God's holy city at the heart of his nation. And Pompey rolls into Jerusalem, lays siege to Jerusalem, and begins to just pound his way into the city and everything and everyone that comes against him or gets in the way of the soldiers is killed, ransacked, raped, pillaged, pillaged, laid aside. I mean, they, they 
leave nothing in their wake as they take new ground on the initial entry to set up shop when they take over territories. And many of God's people retreated to the safety of the Temple Mount. And so they gathered in the Temple Mount, elevated above the city grade of Jerusalem. And not only was it elevated up higher, but it had high walls built around it. And they fortified themselves inside the Temple Mount and and tried to hold out for as long as they could, defending their position, fighting to stay alive. And Rome did what Rome was so good at. They threw engineers at it and manpower at it. And they began to fill in the ditches and the banks around the Temple Mount. And they literally built roads up to the high walls around the temple. And then they brought in, imported, special siege towers that had been proven to be especially effective against huge stone walls. All the way from the Mediterranean, from Tyre, they brought them all the way into Jerusalem and set them up at the Temple Mount, and they started to pound and pound and pound against the walls on the Temple Mount. And for three months, God's people held out. They kept fighting, repairing, hanging in there, but eventually the walls toppled down, Rome pours into the temple, and all 12,000 of God's people that had retreated there were murdered. And then Pompey does the unthinkable thing. He goes onto the temple mount, into the Holy of Holies, and desecrates the most sacred place on earth for God's people. And then from that point forward, things begin to change and change and change, and always it seems for the worst. Rome takes root. They establish themselves in Judea and Jerusalem. They put in government and governors and officials and and law and order brought by Rome. But not only in the government and the politics, they also put in really government-approved priests in the religious system. And things go from bad to worse. As, as God's people are there, they're stripped from their lands. They're stripped from their positions. The people that once owned land and farmed it and, and had worked the, the, it and, and had provided for their families for generations are now working it as hard or harder than they've ever worked it before in order to provide for Rome and the aristocrat landowners that had taken over their lands, and they're left with just barely poverty-level sustenance to survive. And like many of us have seen around the world, hunger, poverty, fear of the unknown lead people to do things that they never would have imagined they were going to do at a certain point in their life. When a dad sees that his kids haven't eaten for three days, desperate times call for desperate measures. And so things begin to shift and God's people begin to do things they never would have imagined they would have done. Some take jobs in Roman households working for the enemy. Some take jobs in the Roman government structure. Some even go so far as to collect taxes from their own people to give to Rome 
Some steal and rob, some to try to be more righteous thieves and only steal from Romans. And, and things start to shift from, from initially God's people, there was unity in their hatred of Rome and their love for God, but now there starts to be this element of, dis, uh, of, of distrust that now, it's not now I just don't like Rome, now I don't like my neighbor that's working for Rome. Now I don't trust the, the man that is across the street because he might steal from me, if he, he might take what little I have left. And, and things go from bad to worse. And, and here's what you've got to understand. It's in the middle of this messy, divided, resentful, distrusting, seemingly unfixable situation that Jesus shows up. In the middle of all this, and he begins to bring God's word to life everywhere he goes. It's, whether it's a one-on-one conversation, a small group of people, a large gathering of people, he looks back to the writings of Moses and the prophets, and he, he teaches them God's words, but then he builds on them in a way that he has such authority that they actually start to believe that perhaps this could be the Messiah that the scriptures have talked about, the one that will come and save us. And, and there's this new thing that starts to give birth among God's people that they have not had for a while, and it was called hope. And they started to think, perhaps this is the Messiah. Perhaps this is the, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. Maybe this is the Savior. But when they're wrestling with, could this be him? The, the, the could this be him is, is, could this be the one that will overthrow Rome? Will we have a new king, a deliverer, a Savior, one that will rescue us like God rescued his people from Egypt? Will we be redeemed, restored, bought back. And for sure, he was those things. But not in the way they expected. And, and just when it seems his ministry has really taken off and people are starting to, to gather momentum and believing and following him, it comes to a very tragic and abrupt end. In the most humiliating of way, he's arrested, falsely accused, lied about, tortured, beaten, and then killed in this most terrible way like a criminal on a cross. And he's buried, and with him are buried the hopes of the people that there would be redemption from Rome, that, that this was actually going to come to an end. And it's like the, the, the stone rolled over the tomb... And along with Jesus, everything about their hopes, their, their dreams that Rome would one be gone, you know, gone and conquered, it's, it's sealed up with him. And, and they just hang their heads and wonder what next. But God does something so cool. God does something so amazing. It is a game-changing event in the history of the world. It is the benchmark event in which all things are measured by. God raises Jesus from the dead, and from that day forward, it is a line in the sand where everything that happened before it is measured by that moment on that day. 
Everything that's happened after it, including your birthday, your anniversary, when your kids were born, the coolest thing that ever happened to you, the day you bought your first car, everything awesome or terrible or everything in your entire life goes back to this line in the sand. We all measure it from here. Whether you believe in Jesus or not, you are anchored to that day. It changed the world forever. And Jesus The resurrected Jesus gathers his followers to himself. He begins to reassure them. First of all, they were a little bit nervous and a little bit freaked out. And he tells them about who he is and what's going on. And he gives them these assurances that not only is he who he says he is and he is resurrected from from the dead, but he gives them assurances that he's going to send someone to be with them that's even more powerful than him. And that he will not leave them unaided, unhelped, alone. And then he goes on to give them this great commission, we call it. It's the most famous set of special instructions that were ever spoken to a group of people. Because these instructions, this special mission that he gave those first followers his, of his and, and every follower after them is grafted into these instructions. It, it changes the world. He told them that, that, that they and everybody that would come after him that would put their faith in him, they all get this mission that they're to go to all nations, to the ends of the earth, and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and to teach them to obey everything that he taught them. And with that, he leaves and goes back to be with the Father. And in God's divine plan, and God's divine timing of things, in a way that seems inexplainable except perfect 2020 hindsight in less than a week there happens to be a festival in Jerusalem that is such a big festival that Jews travel from around the known world at the time to come back on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate the festival of Pentecost and so literally thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people that believe in God but don't know about Jesus are on their way back to the place where all the people are that know about Jesus. And Peter gets to do something amazing. Peter gets to get up in front of all these thousands of God-fearing people, and he gets to give this message to them, this first message ever about who Jesus is and who he was. And in very Jesus-y fashion, he goes back to the books of Moses and the prophets, and he talks about who Jesus was and how he was going to show up. And then he talks about how he did show up, and, and then he validates that he, he is who the scriptures say that he was. And he gives this great testimony about the risen Jesus. And as he's saying this, the audience is going from interest to convicted. The scriptures use this language that, that Luke says that they were pierced to the heart. It's like those times in your life where you find out afterwards that some you really hurt somebody's feelings but you absolutely didn't mean to you you did or said something and it just broke this person and then you find out afterwards and you're like oh i feel like such a heel like and you feel real like genuinely you're not making it up like you feel rotten inside it's like this gut punch like ah i how did i 
how did I even do that, right? And it's like this crowd is going, how did we get here? How, how did we, part- we didn't even realize it. How did we participate in something so awful? This, this isn't what we want. And from the crowd, it's like you could imagine hearing people whispering and talking amongst themselves and Peter preaching out. And then until finally somebody in the crowd just can't take it anymore. What are we supposed to do now? And another person shouts up, yeah, what are we going to do? What are we supposed to do? And it's like the crowd is bubbling up with something that Peter is watching. It's like the water is starting to boil on repentance. People are starting to turn from sin, and they just don't know what to do or where to turn. And so Peter gets to say some words to them that I think, this is just me. I have no reason to say this for Scripture. This is just my speculation. I think these words that Peter is about to say may be the favorite things that he ever got to say in his life. That day, to that crowd Watching their hearts turn before his very eyes, Peter got to say to them, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the free gift of the Holy Spirit. And they did. 3,000 people. 3,000 people go all in. They get baptized. They go all in to follow Jesus that day. Could you imagine? Could you imagine? Uh, last Sunday, we baptized two people in front of the building, and there was 50, 60, 70 people packed around the baptismal. People are excited. They were celebrating. We were praying. They were hugging each other. We were patting on the back. It was like, man, this was awesome. That was two baptisms. Could you imagine if there was 10,000 people in the audience and a line of 3,000? Like, your heart would be wrung out with emotion. And Peter's there for that. And then from that day forward, things start to shift for the good. There's this new thing going on in Jerusalem, especially to begin with, is God's people are are so overwhelmed with how much God loves them and how much they love God and how good God is and how much his word really is true that they actually are just selling out to just live that way. They love God so much. They love their neighbor so well. When someone's in need, they sell something. If they've got anything that there's a way that they could meet that other person's need, they go for it. They're just like, well, it's worth it. There's widows amongst them that have no means to provide for themselves, nothing left of their own, and they rally and figure out how do we support them? This is something that God's word teaches and we've neglected it. How do we do it? We've got to get back to, to, to living the scriptures the right way. And, and it's crazy. Something amazing starts to happen out of the woodwork, far from the, the crevices and the crooks and the crannies, the, the unseen people, the people that had been forgotten and neglected and oppressed and looked over and stepped on, they start to come out of the woodwork like, is it safe? And they start to realize that people are really going to accept them, that people are going to feed them, that people are going to care about them, that, that these, these believers in what is now known as the way, these new believers that are following the way are actually accepting them and loving them and embracing them. And it's like wildfire. Just one thing starts to lead to another, to another. And this amazing time in God's history where God's people literally are just loving each other so well, people can't hardly not jump on board. And everybody looks back in, in our modern world and we go, oh, how good it would have been to be a part of the early church. They did all these things so right. Right? 
And, and it was such a beautiful time. And let me tell you, it was a long, ugly road to get there. And it was a really, really, really short snapshot of history where it worked really well. If you've ever been a part of a group of people that loved each other really well, you've been a home group where someone was sick and they brought you a meal where you looked out for each other, where your car broke down and somebody rallied and helped fixed it, you've been in the New Testament church. That's it. It showed up for a little teeny time and then it sort of got really difficult again. Less than a year after this time, less than a year after this time, the early church that was off to such a good start, faces its biggest threat yet. This time, not from Rome. This time, the threat comes from within their own religious organization, from the leadership within the Jewish religion. And so the Jewish leaders are watching their authority and their influence and their power trickle away because people are not looking to them for guidance or following their rules and their restrictions. They're now experiencing freedom in Christ and following Jesus. And that's a huge threat to them. And so the religious leadership of the day begins to persecute people that believe in Jesus, these believers in the way. And they begin to threaten people to denounce their faith, to, to, to deny that Jesus could be God, that that's blasphemy. And this persecution begins to heat up all the way to the point where we see in Acts this man named Stephen who faces markedly one of the most significant kind of benchmark persecutions of Christians as things changed. He's surrounded by people who are telling him to deny that Jesus is real, that that you can't believe what you believe. You're wrong, and if you don't turn from this way, you will be killed. Like, Like, do you know what you're doing? And in the face of that kind of persecution, knowing that death was imminent and harm was certain, Stephen does a really Jesus-y thing. He goes back to the words of Moses that he learned as a child and the words of the prophets, and he just starts to tell God's story. He's like, but listen, like Peter with a captive audience, Stephen's like, this may be my only chance ever to tell the story of God. And if it's the last thing out of my mouth, it's the best story I could ever tell. And he tells God's story until he's killed. And from that moment on, the persecution ramps up and and God's people, the the followers of Jesus and the new followers of this thing called the way, they find themselves threatened at every corner. And so they begin to scatter and spread out to the villages and towns and the outlying areas to to live in obscurity and trying to find a little anonymity where people don't know them and try and figure out where is it safe to be me and where do I have to hide and how do I live? Some make it as far as Colfax. Some make it as far as Tri-Cities. Some make it all the way to Coeur d'Alene before they stop and turn around and go, is it safe? Like, is, can I sleep here tonight? Am I going to be okay? Will my family be okay? And it's in these places that they've scattered to where they're trying to figure out how to eat tomorrow and start over that they start to interact with people and they start to tell their story. And they actually start to tell the story of Jesus. And all of a sudden, there are people in places that didn't know anything about Jesus hearing Jesus' story being testified about by people who have experienced it firsthand. 
And James is the half-brother of Jesus. And James is really one of the most influential leaders of this early group of believers, this early church that started in Jerusalem and then spread. And James starts to pastor and elder and invest in and shepherd this growing flock of believers. And so that meant that he would go to their gatherings and pray or teach or bring the scriptures alive and instruct or correct or help let them know when they're way off path. Like, no, 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 this isn't the right way. You're believing something different now. And he would give correction or help or support Very much like an awesome dad looking out for his kids in those teenage years where they're like trying to figure out how to have their own freedom and how to do it right and how to like, when do I let them drive and when do I let them, you know, take the car how far, right? Like James is in that season. But something starts to shift. Rome starts to come against the believers of Jesus. And Rome starts to ramp up persecution against the followers of Jesus. And James is sitting there like looking at the writing on the wall, recognizing that things are changing for the worse and his time is short. Everywhere he looks now, there's enemies of people who believe in Jesus within their own people, within the Roman citizenship from other pagan worshipers. Like there's enemies everywhere. It's like the walls are closing in on him and he's realizing, I don't know how much longer I'm gonna be safe. I don't know how much longer I have to pastor this growing church of scattered people that are meeting all over the place and are trying to follow Jesus. I don't know how many more times I can go to that place or go to that place and make it home safe because things are shifting. And it's in that context, in that sort of situation that James writes the letter that we've been reading. He writes this letter to this early church, these early believers in Jesus to, like we've said, like a a legacy letter to, to say to them, like, if I never get to see you again, these are the things you have to know from a guy who has been there with him, who has prayed with him, who has experienced persecution with him, has watched people that he loves be killed because they wouldn't deny their faith. He deeply cares for the people in this early church. And he writes these words to them with the heart of a shepherd and a pastor for people that he cares about. If you could imagine what would happen, what kind, of, what kind of a letter would you write if you knew your time was short? The people that are in your circle, your family, your close friends, people you've met along the way, what would you want them to know if you, if you had one letter left in you and you may never get to speak to them again? What would you write? That's where James is coming from. And so he writes these, these words, and I share all of that so that when we get to James chapter 5, and we start reading about what he has to say about prayer, there's no way we can go back and be where they were or feel what they felt. But we can try. And if we're willing to try, I think we can understand the heart of a pastor better. I think we can hear his words more accurately. I think we can wrestle with the tensions and the emotions and the stress and the, the stuff 
that those first century Christians would have been feeling so that when we hear what he has to say about prayer, it hits us a little bit more like it would have hit them. And not just chapter five, verse this, what do we do? So let's read. James chapter five, verse 13. Are any of you suffering hardships? You should pray. Are any of you happy? You should sing praises. Are any of you sick? You should call for the elders of the church to come and pray over you, anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. Such a prayer offered in faith will heal the sick, and the Lord will make you well. And if you have committed any sins, you will be forgiven. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. Elijah was as human as we are, and yet when he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall, none fell for three and a half years. Then when he prayed again, the sky sent down rain and the earth began to yield its crops. So in classic James fashion, it's pretty straightforward He's a pretty say-it-as-it-is guy. And so we can approach the text, and it's, it's one of these things where it's easy to read what it says. It's easy to understand or comprehend the words that we read. It's a whole different thing to believe what we just read. And I wonder if the people that would have heard this letter read to him would have struggled with some of the things that I think some of us struggle with. Like them, we've experienced hardships. Like them, we've prayed when times are hard. I know I have. And there's times where I can say for sure, I know that God has answered my prayers. And I know God's heard and been involved and affirmed and showed himself But I also know that there's a lot of times where things have been tough and I've prayed and I don't really hear anything. And I don't really see any answer and it feels way more obviously unanswered or ignored than it feels like God answers. And then he says to the, those that are sick, he says, if you're sick, call for the elders, you know, bring the elders to, to come and pray earnestly over them and anoint them with oil so that they can be healed. And I know of a lot of people through the years, who have been sick and who have come to the elders and have been anointed with oil and they don't get well. I know of many who have been healed. I've heard a lot of stories of people that have been healed. Crazy, cool, miracle stuff. And then I've seen lots that aren't. So the thing that that I wonder if his people that he wrote to would have wrestled with, maybe similar to what some of us wrestle with, is it's not so much the answered prayers and the people that are healed that we wrestle with. That stuff's easy. It's what do we do when we don't hear from God, when God doesn't answer our prayer? What do we do when people aren't healed? How do we do, like, what do we do now, James? And I'm not saying I've, an expert on unanswered prayer by any stretch. But I want to just share a couple of thoughts with you. A couple possible answers to the problem with unanswered prayers. I mean, I think sometimes God just delays the answers that we seek to help us stay humbly dependent on him. 
That certainly was, seemed to be the case with Paul and the thorn in his side. Like he, I think he would have liked to have that prayer answered. But he just had to keep coming to the Lord with it. Elijah, the example that James gives, even when he prayed for God to send rain, it didn't happen right away. He had to pray and pray and pray and pray until eventually, finally, this teeny little cloud shows up a long ways off. I think sometimes God holds off in answering because there's something about developing our character, something about our genuine dependence on him, the maturing of our spirit. There's something that he's doing in us that sometimes we don't always see as we're going through it. I think another reason that maybe sometimes there's unanswered prayer is that, is that God sometimes answers no for his own reasons beyond our understanding. Now, this is not a fun one to say, right? Like, hey, the truth is sometimes you're going to pray and you're going to get a no and you don't get a no why. Gee, thanks. Real good, right? Like, and we all are familiar with this. Like, if you either remember when you were little or if you have had little kids, there's a certain point where no, just no works, right? Little kid, can I have a popsicle? No. And they're just like, nothing I can really do about it. The tall person said no, and I, you know, that's just it, right? No is no. But then they get a little bit bigger. Can I have a popsicle? No. Why not? Because I said no. I'm looking for something a little deeper than that, Dad. I mean, here's all the reasons why. I don't know if you've seen my three-point PowerPoint presentation on why popsicles are good and how I've earned one, but I wanted to present you with the reasons why I should have it, right? And it's like we bring that same kind of childish perspective sometimes into our relationship with God and our prayer life with God. And we're like, I don't like, no, like, look at where I'm at. Like, seriously, God, I mean, I get, I mean, a nose, a nose fine, but you can at least tell me why, like, what do I need to do different? What do I need to work on? What am I missing? Right? Maybe that's just me. Sometimes I think God just has his own reason for not answering our prayer. I, I've thought about this, just kind of funny stuff as I daydream and think about different things. What would it have been like if I would have been back in Jesus's day or got to know John the Baptist? And I, I think for one, I would have been praying for John the Baptist to be awesome, right? I, like he, he seems cool. He seems like he's in the desert kicking butt and taking names and nobody's messing with him and people are fired up and he's like, are you ready to turn? Wham! Let's get you dunked. Are you ready to stop being an idiot? Let's get you dunked, right? And people are opposing him and he's kicking butt and, and shaking things up. I like that. I'm like, I hope this guy gets everybody shook up. Let's, let's mess with the system. That appeals to me a little bit. And so I think I would have been praying for John to be like really successful and it wasn't God's plan. I for sure think I would have been probably like many of us praying that Jesus wouldn't have had to go through what he went through. I would have been praying that he wouldn't have had to go to the cross, like that God would have showed up, done something radical, would have cut him loose, would have came against his enemies, would have struck everybody down with lightning, something. 
And I could have prayed all I wanted, but that's not God's plan. And so I just wonder, I mean, thinking about those, they're sort of silly ideas, but it helps me just kind of have a perspective that maybe what I'm praying for, maybe it isn't really God's plan and there's something else going on that he knows that I need to trust. The, the, the last couple of things in here is just that he talks about the prayers of a righteous person. And I just think it's significant to wrestle with that and, and camp out on that, that it's a righteous person, not a righteous group of people. It's not about the place that you pray. It's not about the day that you pray. It's not the righteous prayers of an earnest pastor or ordained minister. It's not the righteous prayers of uh, a thousand earnest people. It's just the righteous prayers of an earnest person. And then the last thing, and I'm going to give you guys some homework, is uh, the last thing I think is pretty interesting is he gives Elijah as this example. Um, I don't know about you guys. Uh, we probably don't have the same context that the original hearers would have heard, but in Jesus' day, uh, in James's day, Elijah had essentially accomplished legend status. Like, Elijah was the man, when it comes to people that were following God. He went toe-to-toe with the most wicked leader that Israel had ever had. In 1 Kings, it says that Ahab was like such a horrible person that had oppressed and opposed God and done such wicked things more than anyone ever before him. Like, he had that claim to fame, right? And Elijah goes toe-to-toe with him. He goes toe-to-toe with his wife. He goes toe-to-toe with the 400 false prophets of Baal that they had brought in. He stands up against them. He does this epic showdown. He has all this stuff, but he also has normal human stuff, which I think is why James leads with, take Elijah. And he says, first of all, he was as human as we are. He was just a regular guy. He had terrible days and doubts and hard times. prayer of a righteous man. And so I I threw some stuff in your notes for you to just kind of dig in to Elijah and just think about this. Like why, why does James, when James is teaching about prayer and he says the things he's saying, why does he use Elijah as an example? And what could we maybe learn as we dig in and learn a little bit more about his story? And so I would encourage you to take those things. And then Last thing is at the very end of your notes, you'll see some questions there. And those questions are just really designed to help you um, kind of zero in on maybe what is God burdening you to pray about? I think all of us, if we, if somebody said, hey, you need to go pray, we could probably ramble on and talk about some stuff to God. But, but is there anything that God's really stirring us to pray about, to bring before him? And so there's some questions there that might help spur that along. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us by going to rlcpullman.com or by following us on Facebook or YouTube. Until next time, have a great week.